Welcome to TechTastic, the podcast that explores the cutting-edge world of technology and its impact on society. New breakthroughs and developments are revolutionizing the world around us, presenting exciting opportunities as well as complex challenges. We'll explore the big ideas and key players driving these transformations. As we seek to understand the implications of these advancements for our lives, our communities, and our planet. Join us on this journey of discovery and exploration as we navigate the fascinating and ever-evolving world of technology. This is TechTastic. Douglas Squirrel, welcome to It's TechTastic. It is so lovely to have you here. Likewise, glad to be here. So I recently joined the Squirrel Squadron, and I'm very excited by some of the upcoming events that you have. The topic that you discuss at length in all the various forms that you communicate, your podcast, your newsletter, is really near and dear to my heart. And I think it is to anybody who's been in leadership for any period of time, because you realize over time that the problem you're dealing with in any organization is the same one. And I said before we got into the recording here that it's about communication, and you corrected me. And I actually want to get into why you corrected me, because I think it's a really important point. The term I would use is conversations, and that's why my book is called Agile Conversations. I wrote it with Jeffrey Frederick from IT Revolution a couple of years ago. And the reason that there's a difference between communication and conversations is conversations are two-way and high bandwidth, or at least good conversations are. And yes, you can have a conversation over Slack. But man, are you going to misunderstand each other all over the place. And you can have a conversation by letter, right? Back in the ancient days, people would send letters back and forth to each other and take days and days and they'd lose all the context. And it was very confusing. And so that's why people got on planes and went to see each other. And then we had this pandemic and now no one goes to see each other anymore. But we still have high bandwidth communication like video calls like we're on. I know listeners can't see us, but you know, you and I can see each other and that helps us to record this better. And even more importantly, if you're going to have a difficult conversation with one of your staff about a missed delivery or poor performance or uh, how to promote the right person, any of those difficult conversations, they're going to be a thousand times better if they're in person in some sense. In other words, high bandwidth, loads of feedback, immediate responses. And that that high bandwidth part's really critical. As you were saying, I was like, oh yeah, there's a reason that we are on video with each other because I can see what you're smiling or you're not. I can see how you're holding your body, all those types of things, and better understand how the message is being received. The thing in my head is being transcribed into yours. That's a key part. But I want to touch on what you said there about conversations versus communication, because one of the things that I keep going on and on about with my own teams is clarity. And when I hear silence in a room, when a bunch of people are all nodding their heads and saying, yeah, yeah, we're going to do X, Y, or Z, I... That's when you worry. Yes. <laughs> every time, every time that there's radical consent, everybody's agreeing. I start asking every question I can come up with because mm -hmm. I'm worried. Like, okay, you all agree that we're going to deliver this by that date. Define for me done. When you say you're going to be done with it, what do you mean is the first question I'm always going to ask. And almost immediately, you hear four different versions of that. Mm -hmm. And so when I hear conversation, I feel like it's the response to the thing that I notice all the time and have tried to come up with a way of describing. So I liked the idea of the high bandwidth conversation being critical to that because that's so true. 
our brains are like little universes where we've got our worldview and our motivations. And the hardest thing is to take somebody else's perspective to the detail, to the definition of done or the, or what, you know, pick a word and put it into our own and vice versa to get my view right. into yours. And, and I'd actually disagree with you. I don't think we're good at that at all. I think human beings are very good at projecting their own views to someone else and to um, understanding to the best of their ability what they would do in the same situation. But we're terrible and sort of evolutionarily it's good that we're terrible at understanding someone's really different thinking. Because if we had stood around on the savanna and if you were getting up suddenly and, and running away from the campfire, if I had said to myself, now let me consider how does Christian think and what might be important to a Christian? And how does Christian feel about running? You know, let me just consider that. I would have been eaten, right, by the lion that you saw and I didn't, and, and we had to run away. So um, it's very natural for me to make, first of all, uh, quite negative connotation. I'm not going to think, oh, he's running to, for exercise. I'm going to think, lion, and get out of there, because that was vital. So you make negative deductions, and you make deductions that are based on your own view and that are, are quick. Uh, if you read a book called uh, Thinking Fast and Slow by a guy called Kahneman, he talks all about how these things came to be and why they work this way and how it is that it's very difficult. It actually takes more calories. It, it tires out of your brain, uses more energy, and you get more tired at the end of the day when you have to reflect carefully on what someone else is thinking. And so we're very bad at that. It costs us a lot. And it's much easier to say, oh, well, I would do this. And so that must be what they're thinking. I was coaching a CEO on this just earlier today because he was having trouble with his CTO. And he said, look, I'm sure that the CTO thinks this. I said, that's precisely when you should be asking the CTO what he thinks, because there's something important that's different to what you think that he thinks. And that's where you have learning. Now this recording is happening in the past for anybody listening to it, but today GitHub had their big conference that they put on, but they showed off all the new functionality that they put into Copilot. And my software engineers were looking at all this wonderful functionality that I was like, ooh, ah, we should do all these things. We should- The computer can write half the code for you. Won't this be wonderful? And they said- They said, I hate it. It just distracts me. That would slow me down. I don't want that in my IDE. And I had to stop myself to go, wait a second, I've been them too. Let's think this through. Oh yeah, the last thing I wanna do is be interrupted. And so what I was seeing was you've got an organization run by largely Microsoft, so you've got a very strong view of what's coming, right? They're putting from the executive down, they're putting their view of the problems that are in front of them. And for me, I can think about that too. I can say, okay, the things I worry about are, I like getting my hands dirty. I wanna be in the code, but I do it so infrequently that every time I do it, I spend most of my time bugging the team. And now I don't have to, because look at the set of tools that are gonna to solve that for me. Sure. Or, But it doesn't necessarily help them. Yes. And that's where it's hard for you to put yourself in their shoes. This is what I was telling the CEO as well. You don't have to necessarily agree with them. So it could be that after they use these tools for a few weeks, they wouldn't find them distracting anymore, kind of like refactoring tools and the other cool things that we have in integrated development environments that help us write code. Maybe we're distracting at first, but we get used to them. And so you might have that view, but that doesn't mean that it isn't extremely valuable for you to understand that they disagree. Had you just blasted ahead and said, great, everyone, we're starting to use Copilot on Monday. Here's the bits, here's how we do it. Um, you know, I'm installing it, everybody go to the training. 
then you would have missed the opportunity to learn that some of them perceive it as interruptive. And similarly, I was telling the CEO that he was sure he knew how his CTO would react. And I was telling him, there's an opportunity to learn. You don't have to agree with him. He may react in a way to this new thing that is coming, this new opportunity, in a way you don't like. But isn't it better to know that? Because if you just steamroll right over it, you'll never learn that, and that won't help you to make progress. And he may have an idea that would improve it. So they might have an idea for using Copilot that you would never have thought of because they're actually writing code every day. So when you're coaching a first-time executive, especially in technology, you've talked about some of the black and white thinking. You've talked about trying to put yourself into a different role. For me, I always felt the first step into leadership was the hardest for a technologist because maybe it was the black and white piece, but it's also the expertise piece. You went from being an expert at something to a complete novice at leadership. So your default- And nobody tells you that you did. That, and your default is to always go back to where you were an expert, which is the biggest mistake you can make. Mm -hmm. And that includes when you make errors. And this is one of the most difficult ones. There's a fantastic article, and I think it's by Horowitz. I might get that wrong. And I think it's called The Psychology of Being a CEO. And I, I, I'll get tiny bits of that wrong, but we can find it in the show notes, I'm sure. And it's wonderful for everybody who moves into executive leadership because he explains that for a very long time, you've been getting straight A's. You've been getting 100% on all your exams. Everything's been perfect because everyone has pushed you along and they've said, you're doing wonderful. You're doing great because you are. And then you get to be an executive and you find out that there's all these things you're going to screw up. And that's part of the job. It's actually expected. So actually like the mean score for being a CEO, he's making up this number, but the mean score is like 22 out of 100. And nobody tells you that. So you suddenly hit and you're like, oh my God, I'm just must be a complete failure. I'm an absolute idiot. And it's not until you meet some others who then tell you, you know, actually we screw up all the time too. The point is you need to screw up and, and recover from it. And so a lot of what I'm doing in coaching new executives of any kind, I coach salespeople and CEOs and lots of other people as well as CTOs. Any of those folks who are new to that role need to spend an awful lot of time getting feedback, a lot of it negative feedback, which is uncomfortable and not fun and has, has a lot of difficult conversations rather than doing what's comfortable, which is going back to what they were doing, which is selling or, or um, uh, writing code or whatever it is. Uh, it re requires a lot of courage to do that. I have uh, tremendous respect for people who achieve that and, and a lot of understanding and empathy with people who say, this isn't for me. And it's not for most people. It shouldn't be. I mean, if it was, we'd have a stratification of any organization would be imbalanced in a way you don't want. Mm -hmm. I think that the principal reason people want promotion is not ego. It's not because they want to be on top of an organization. Most people don't really have that same desire. It's that corporations often don't give you another path to growth. And so they look at management and go, that's the route I want to go because that's my only real option. And an organization needs to structure itself. So that's not true. You want your highest performing technical experts or you know whatever they are, if they're subject matter expert, you want them doing that. That's their most valuable role, but they screw up in the way they set it up. Yeah, strangely, banks get this right because they don't want traders doing anything but trading. They just want them on the screens all day, pounding away, making trades, making a penny here and a penny there, but multiplied by billions. Uh, so they give them huge rewards for doing exactly that. And they never let them off the floor. I, I've seen it work well in some technology organizations where they have almost unlimited promotions. They create roles when people get to a certain level. They're like, well, you were a principal engineer. 
let's make you a senior principal engineer or, or you know they start inventing titles principal principal yeah something like yeah. principal squared <laughs> yep that's the way to go but far too few people do it it doesn't fit nicely into you know an hr system's view of levels and creating an equitable playing field for everybody because it starts to create like these exceptions and they don't like exceptions but i actually think your organization you want those exceptional people you want the ones that stand out they're the most valuable people you have and too often people drive the organizations drive them away so when you're building a new organization thinking of that through like i created a new company and it's full of exceptional people they were all the standouts at the companies they worked at before and they were drawn to what we're doing because we're solving something they hated about their careers up to this point, right? So it's a wonderful opportunity for that. But my whole view was, well, let's let's gather the exceptional, let's create an environment where they can slay the dragons they've always wanted to, the you know, the things they hated about their career up to this point, let's go solve those. That's a huge value proposition as a company. Our products will be these things. And they all know that they're always going to be hands-on. That's what they want to be doing. That's also great. But it was a magnet and it works when you're small because you can give everybody almost unlimited freedom because there's a billion things that need to be done and there's 12 people trying to do it. But when you scale, that becomes far more difficult to manage. You almost have to start thinking through the scaling problem as far as the organization from day one. And that's where most organizations start to fall apart. Which is why scaling is not usually a good idea. Go. Tell me more about so, that. <laughs> so so uh, Instagram sold for billions. I forget what it was. Uh, Zuckerberg paid a ton for 13 people. And they served millions and millions and millions of people with those 13 people. How, those were all exceptional people. You don't have to have met any of them to know. They must be if they're, they're building something that valuable with that many users. They didn't spend a lot of time worrying about which one was the senior principal engineer of principal engineership, right? They were worried about getting a lot more people to look at a lot more pictures. Now, this is the hard road. This is not the easy road. But I see over and over and over again that organizations take the easy road and they say, well, we need more bodies because we need to do more of what we're already doing. And if we just turn the crank, we'll get more. And so let's get some uh, nice uh, young folks from university straight out and give them more jobs to do and they can turn the crank and that'll be great. And the problem is then they have all the management challenges. So I think that your listeners might want to consider how they could follow more of an Instagram path. Now that's a harder path because you have to pay more for very senior, very experienced people. You bet none of those people were, that was not their first rodeo. That was not the first time they tried building Instagram. They built it many times before. And so they were able to do it very quickly and with very uh, high leverage, right? So what you want, if you want to follow this path, is to keep the lid as much as you can on your growth so you're not scaling the organization but you're certainly scaling your revenue and your and your users and whatever else it is your, your key metrics and that's horribly difficult that's a, a harder road it's funny i do think about scaling from the beginning but I, I do put a cap on it i try to limit it and always ask the question first is there something we can do so that we don't need to hire that person is there a system we can implement is there a process we can do whatever it is and if the answer is no we have to hire a person that's the justification for it but i always want to try everything else first because what do we do as technologists what is technology actually doing it's automating something that a human used to do generally so if we need more technologists to do it we probably didn't do a very good job of automating our own daily lives. We are software engineers. Let's go take care of that. Let's go do that. Yeah. Well, Douglas, we've only got a couple of minutes left. Anything you want to leave the audience with? 
Uh, well, I'll just mention one that we haven't come to a type of difficult conversation that's very important exactly when you want to keep your team small and you want to make sure that you're making very rapid progress, and that's accountability. And there are a whole bunch of methods for making sure not that you hold someone else accountable, but that you give the opportunity for them to account to you and you to account to them. The source of the word is actually tax collectors in the uh, English 1200s who would go around and come to the king having collected all the taxes and they'd have to say, this is the tax I got from this, this is the tax from that. They were explaining what it is they did. And of course, if they kept some of the taxes they got, their heads chopped off. So it kind of mattered that you were being accountable, but you were giving the account. It wasn't that the king came to you and said, tell me. It was that you had to go to the king and say, here's what I've done. Similarly, you need people and you need the culture into your team where there's frequent and clear communication and conversations about what is it we were planning to do? What difficulties are we having? Where are we on the plan that we're working toward? And if you can set those up, there's a technique called briefing and back briefing that's very good for this. If you can set those up well, then your life as an executive is a lot simpler. And that's what I coach a lot of people on. So if you're interested in hearing more about all that kind of stuff, uh, have a look at squirrelsquadron.com. That's my community of tech and non-tech executives together. I don't know of any other community like that. There's lots of communities for each individual function, but where do you get CTOs rubbing shoulders with COOs, with uh, heads of product, with um, chief marketing officers? That's what happens in my community. I hold free events. I have podcasts. I have loads of material and, and things that I do, which I'd love listeners to check out over at squirrelsquadron.com. And as I said at the preamble, I just recently joined and I'm already seeing a lot of very valuable content in there. So uh, definitely head on over to squirrelsquadron.com. Glad to have you. Thanks. Douglas, thank you so much for joining the podcast. It was lovely to have you. Likewise. And that's a wrap for this episode of TechTastic. I want to thank you personally for joining us, and we'll see you next time. Until then, keep exploring and stay curious.